is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Mandy Gunasekara. Mandy is an environmental law attorney and was the chief of staff of the EPA under the Trump administration, and now a principal at Section 7 Strategies, a regulatory consulting firm. So we're going to talk about U.S. energy policy today, uh, something that Mandy has a lot of familiarity with, uh, what's wrong with it, why we're seeing such high energy, high energy costs right now, especially with regards to the gas prices, which have gone through the roof, um, and why that's obviously how it's connected to inflation of, of all basically aspects of our economy now. And we're also going to talk about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, something that both of us have a particular interest in and discuss where that is currently and the future role that it'll play in the United States. So Mandy, thanks so much for being with me. Really great to be here. Appreciate it. So let, let's start off there with the, you worked at the EPA, so you have particular knowledge about environmental policies and by extension, the energy policies. Um, U.S. gas prices are on average like about $4.20 cents a gallon at this present moment. Uh, Trump's last days of office, the administration you, wor- you worked in, it was about 238 per gallon. Here in uh, LA, it's like six bucks a gallon. Uh, in LA, much of SoCal, I-, I even saw, I think, $7 a gallon a few days ago at-, at some of the gas stations down here. And we're told by the current president, the current administration, that this is just the fault of Russia and Putin and, you know, uh, maybe greedy oil executives. What's wrong with that argument? It's completely false. Um, the, the reason we are where we are in terms of gas prices is because this administration, President Biden from day one, initiated an all-out assault, assault on domestic energy, our domestic energy industry and the producers that are a part of it. So a lot of folks heard about Keystone XL Pipeline shutting that down, which was a major artery in terms of transporting gasoline and or crude oil all throughout this country. That's a huge issue. Um, And then also the leasing ban on federal lands. But it goes much deeper than that. I mean, their their approach to making it very difficult for anyone to develop and produce energy in this country, it permeates a lot of the regulatory agencies, including EPA. Um, They've been going out of their way just to make it more difficult for the type of entities to receive permits that are needed to operate. And what it also does is this collective assault, whole of the government, if you will, assault um, on U.S. energy, the U.S. energy industry. It's also sending a signal to the markets and telling capital allocators, don't invest in this industry Mm -hmm. because we, the federal government, um, we don't appreciate it. And, And that chilling of investment is equally harmful to to growing the U.S. energy system, which is what we need. You know, it's a supply-demand issue, but it's also these signals that have been sent to the market today, which is why consumers are paying exorbitant prices. And, you know, from day one in the Trump administration, it was very clear that the energy industry in the United States, whether we were talking about 
our oil and gas producers, our coal coal producers, our um, nuclear operators, you know, all the people who make up the very complex and diverse supply chain of energy producers, we saw them as really important partners to a better economic future and a cleaner environment. And this administration has just turned that on its head. And it's the American consumers that are really dealing with the very Mm -hmm. severe consequences of it. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of important things there. So the same people who are against our fossil fuel industry, they're against coal, they're against natural gas, or natural gas, of course, because of its um, innovations made there, it's been able to actually reduce our carbon emissions significantly. Uh, particularly, I think we're back to where we were in the 90s, we're lower than we were 20 years ago. They're against nuclear as well, which is something you mentioned. They're they're against oil. So it's like every logical solution they're, they're against, we just keep hearing about wind and solar. And this gets into the environmental social governance thing that we're, we're going through right now we're seeing a big push into led by very powerful institutions in the government and in corporate america like blackrock for example who basically push this on many of the companies well they're investing in everything they're like a major shareholder in almost every company and so they can control and nudge industries all over the country basically to step away from fossil fuels so we we see a basically drowning out of the permitting process, um, not giving you permits, canceling them. And on top of that, we see this this push to almost vilify the industry. What's, if you could talk about like what, how the ESG movement sort of plays into all of this, like how, how that further has maybe exacerbated some of this, this pain that we're feeling now? Yeah, I think, um, well, let me say this, the ESG movement, and I can come back and expand on it a little bit more is it's largely a marketing gimmick. Um, And it's, you know, it is, it is leading the charge in terms of what I was talking about, the market signals, sending a market signal that, um, you know, this federal government doesn't want market allocators, uh, or sorry, capital allocators to invest in your traditional energy sources that are hugely important to having a growing and thriving economy. But before that, it's important to know, and and you touched on this, we have such a positive environmental story to tell and be proud of in this country. We lead the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And we did, without the Paris Climate Accord, we did it because of this explosive investment and innovation that occurred in the natural gas industry. There's a international, IEA, the International Energy Administration, they put out annual or like every other year reports. And there's constantly a paragraph devoted to the fact that to date, the U.S. has achieved the largest reduction in CO2, energy-related CO2 emissions since 2005 compared to any other country out there. So that's something to be proud of and also important to know. We did that by investing in innovation and unleashing our U.S. energy industry, not by prohibiting certain technologies and trying to put everyone's everyone's eggs in the renewable energy basket. There's nothing wrong with the renewable energy basket, but our energy system has to be much more diverse in order to not only meet the demands that we have today, but also to meet the growing demands that we know are going to occur in the future. And the ESG component, that coming in, again, it's it's largely a marketing gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of CEOs getting up there saying, hey, we're going to be net zero by 2030 or 2050. Um, I'm all about a lower emissions future. I think starting from there is more realistic in terms of um, doing what we do well, which is figuring out the most efficient mm-hmm. means to 
to extract, refine, transport, and consume the variety of energy resources that we have. But but putting such a greater emphasis on ESG, I actually think it's it lends itself to bad financial outcomes, and then it also lends itself to broader consequences now that the federal government um, via the the SEC is looking to adopt an ESG style approach um, in terms of requiring companies to disclose additional information. Um, they're, they're going to further tamp down investments in the very industries we need, your traditional energy industries, the investments that we need to get, about, get us out of the inflation situation and get us out of uh, the suppressed supply and high gas mm-hmm. and high energy crosses across across the board. Mm-hmm. So, what would be the the quickest ways to turn around? I don't think it's going to happen in this, uh, under this administration, unfortunately. But if a subsequent administration came in, maybe it was Trump, maybe somebody else, uh, would it be to lower sort of our energy costs? Because we don't actually have to be paying this. We we have so much natural resources in this country that we we should have the cheapest energy prices in the world, and it should be significantly lower than they are today. So, would it just be like approving more oil uh, and gas permits and licenses and things of that nature. Would there be any other components to it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's doing what we did. Uh, it was defined as the the position of being in a position of energy dominance, but it's all about reducing barriers for our oil and, ga- oil and gas industry to get out and do what they do best. So opening up federal lands, going through the the federal register and getting rid of regulations that are barriers to development and don't actually provide tangible outcomes. I'll pause on that just for one second. That's something we are very proud of at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. There's this false narrative that you have to choose between a robust energy system, a growing economy, and a clean environment. Mm -hmm. Actually, what we know and what we proved in the Trump administration is that they all work very well together. And you typically have countries that have uh, the the strongest economies also have the cleanest economies because they have the extra resources and the wherewithal to produce energy in very efficient, environmentally aware manners. And so what you could do is just reinstitute what we did, which is pair back regulations. President Trump had a two for one policy. So for every new one new regulation, you had to get rid of two regulations. That was really important. It requires a lot more work because what we had to do was go in and look at the the Again, it's called the Federal Register. It's where it publicly lists out all of the existing regulations. We had to go in and figure out, okay, does this actually work? And does it work in terms of meaningfully moving the ball towards a tangible environmental improvement, whether we're talking about cleaning up air, cleaning up water, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, or addressing legacy pollution? Mm -hmm. Those were the four main components of how we went about implementing US EPA is a very important mission, but it's opening up federal lands. It's getting rid of unnecessary regulations because that's just wasted costs, costs that companies spend on regulatory compliance. And that's just money to Washington, D.C. instead of investing in their operations and their people and the latest mm-hmm. and greatest technology. So you pair back the regulatory landscape. And then another thing that President Trump did was um, the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. You know, you reduce the tax burden and you make it easier for capital intensive type operations, which is very much the case throughout the energy industry, to recoup costs. So you're encouraging them to invest, encouraging them to hire more people. You're going to get more production. You're going to have a thriving economy. You're still going to have environmental protections in place, but they're going to be for the purpose of improving the environment, not for purposes of slowing expansion and related growth. Mm -hmm. So 
it's really implementing what we did in the last administration. Um, and and it, it would take some time. All these yeah. things take some time. But, um, you know, I, it, it also what it would do on day one is send that signal to the marketplace that investing in the U.S. oil and gas industry mm-hmm. is a good idea. And I think that that <clears throat> that would also have uh, a positive effect in terms of uh, making the cost of energy much mm-hmm. more affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things you've been seeing as well with the decrease of our production of natural gas and, as we said, the, the vilification of it and the putting obstacles to it, it's actually making the world a dirtier place as well because it's increasing reliance on coal, right? And it's increasing reliance on energy sources from countries that have far worse environmental records and cause much more econ- uh, environmental devastation when they start to punish our own domestic energy production. And for some reason, that doesn't matter to these these people who are making these policies. Do you think that the green energy, so let's talk about like solar and wind, because that's the be all end all, like even nuclear, which is, you know, produces no carbon emissions, isn't a uh, a favored topic, is, is also actually would say vilified by the same kinds of people who demonize oil and gas and fossil fuel industry. Do you think that right now, this decade, can we get to all a, a entirely solar and wind future now or in a few years? Or are we looking at if it ever happens decades away? Yeah, I think it's um, there's going to have to be some major technological breakthroughs for us to get to a system that is solely run on solar and wind energy. Um, they inherently are intermittent, right. right? They only work when the wind blows or the sun shines. And even today, there's there's a mismatch, not just throughout like seasonal periods, but there's a mismatch in the day. The wind tends to blow um, when folks need it the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wind blows and the energy is generated when folks need it the least. Um, and, and so that creates all sorts of problems if you're trying to have a strong, reliable grid that when someone wants to turn on the air conditioner or the TV or flip the lights on or cook a meal um, that is actually going to be available. So with existing technologies today um, and and without some serious breakthrough, primarily through the the battery space, like battery storage Mm -hmm. space, wind and solar just isn't realistic um, for keeping up with current demand. There's also there's also resource issues. I mean, it takes a massive amount of of minerals uh, to make whether you're building solar panels or wind turbines to make them operational and effective. Um, and so there's a massive amount of mining operations that you, you've got to quickly expand if you're trying to push the country towards wind and, and solar, a, a wholly wind and solar reliable type energy industry. And that's, that just is going to take a long time. And the problem there, I mean, this administration, even though they say their purported goal is to expand electrification, there are three mines in the U.S. Um, that have some of the largest deposits of the type of minerals you need to build out wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Um, you need a lot of nickel. You need a lot of what's called platinum group minerals. You need a lot of cobalt, those sorts of things. We have those here in this country. But this administration, earlier this year, there, there's one place in particular. It's called the Twin Metals Mine. Mm-hmm. It's located in northern uh, Minnesota, and they revoked the leasing rights for this mine, uh, thereby cutting off the ability for us in the U.S. to mine the very minerals that are going to be needed Mm -hmm. to expand wind and solar and other electrification goals in this country. And so what it does, and what you rightfully alluded to earlier, it ships all of this this development overseas Mm -hmm. to places like 
China and India where, you know, the there's there's questions about their labor practices and there's also concerns about um the the type of environmental protections they may or may not have in place as they're going about extracting these materials that we need. And then you think about where we are today. So we aren't extremely reliant on Russia for oil and gas, but you know, we're in a crunch in terms of our domestic supply and you have our president who's having to go to places like OPEC and mm-hmm. Venezuela and beg- begging them yep. to put more of this product into into the industry. We're setting ourselves up to be doing that with China in the future if we if we turn our energy system solely to wind and solar and other um, electrification expansion um, type projects this administration has alluded to. And we're setting ourselves up to having to go to China for the type of minerals that will be needed in the future to keep that going when we could just be investing in mining operations that are teed up and ready to go here in the United States today. Um, so wind and solar, it's it's not realistic today to meet existing demand, much less growth. And this administration, even though they purport to, to want to expand that, they're making decisions that will inhibit our ability to be energy secure in the ways that we've learned a hard lesson today um, by shutting down the ability to mine the minerals needed to actually make those goals a reality. Yeah, it's just insane because there's no solutions being offered. It's just basically saying no to everything. It's it's almost like they want American economy to go down or they 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 want to sort of like like hamper our own industries while uh basically strengthening up the industries of other nations regardless of their env- environmental impact. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that as well in terms of the we have a lot of capabilities and a lot of resources in terms of some of these minerals that we don't extract. Uh, we, we we offshore that to other countries who have worse environmental records, as you said. And and the thing about wind and solar, because there's three components to it, because and the, these don't get discussed enough either, right? So you got first of all, they take about they take up a huge amount of land, right? So the amount of land required to generate the equal amount of wind energy relative to natural gas is like it takes like 450 times more land. And obviously there's, yeah. there's components to that as well. That kills a lot of bats. It kills a lot of endangered species. You have to level out the entire land. So like the ecosystems underneath it are damaged and a lot of the you know, rodents, insects that rely on that are damaged. And then on top of that, you have the issue with, with all the iron ore that you have to extract. And on top of that, you have after these things don't work, which they have what, like a, maybe a decade or two lifespan, then you have to figure out what you're going to do with them, where you're going to bury them. That has environmental costs as well. It, it, it's, it's just, it's asinine that there's, never any solutions being discussed as to how we can improve energy efficiency and, and make it cheaper for the American people. Just like know everything. It, it really makes you angry and think about what are the craziest environmental regulations that you came across while you were at the EPA? There had to be a few. They were just insane. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple, one that sticks out. It was, um, it's, it was referred to as the cafe standards. We ultimately changed it to the safe standards. And then this, this recent EPA, um, revitalized it. And I think it's just like the light duty vehicle greenhouse gas rule. But basically, it's a ban on F-150s. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's using the regulatory system to suppress the ability of manufacturers to make products that American consumers not only want, but use um, and really love. And, uh, you know, it's, interesting. it's, it's huh. so problematic to me. And in a so it's a ban on yeah. F, it's a ban on F one fifties because they're also anti Tesla, right? So you know they, yeah. they never give yeah. Elon Musk any credit. He, he's always sort of complaining about that on Twitter. Uh, 
so they're they're against F-150s and then they're against the biggest, you know, American car maker in the EV space as well. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting too because the purpose of EPA isn't to people say it's not to pick winners right. and losers, especially when you're talking about different types of technologies. It's to look at existing technologies and figure out, okay, how can we push the ball in terms of making it more efficient um, and reducing its relative environmental impact. That's what the agency is supposed to do. That's what we got the agency to align with. Again, we called it the back to basics agenda. But instead, what we saw in the Obama administration and unfortunately this administration, they're again using that authority and distorting that mission to um, to to pick and choose between technologies that are either politically favored or politically disfavored. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's that's an abuse of the process. And then it creates all sorts of residual consequences. You know, another pretty, pretty crazy thing at EPA is um, it's not so much a regulation, but I didn't realize the extent to which larger corporations, because they can afford the additional costs that are mm-hmm. affiliated with regulations, Um, the cozy relationship that a lot of the larger corporations have with some of your longstanding career Mm -hmm. uh, bureaucrats at the agencies, and they will purposefully make regulations so expensive and complex, something that they can hire teams Mm -hmm. of people to handle, it limits the ability of smaller to mid-sized companies to come in and create additional competition within the marketplace. So it just becomes a means of market protection for some of the larger corporations. And I saw that happen time mm-hmm. and time again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important point. Yeah, what's a couple million dollars of extra staff to comply with regulations if you're a Fortune 500 company? But if you're a small player, you know, you can't do that, right? So that's another yeah. thing I think people yeah. realize that regulations actually benefit some of the biggest players. They like regulations, right? It keeps the, the marketplace out. Switching out to, to, to Bitcoin, you also have an interest in that, as, as we mentioned. What got you uh, interested in Bitcoin? Because you don't really have the that sort of background. You're, you're an environmental attorney. How did you get interested in Bitcoin to begin with? Yeah, uh, I, a former boss of mine called. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's one of these things. Once you work for somebody, you kind of always work for somebody. So I have very good relationships with my former bosses. And one of them called and just asked me if what I thought about Bitcoin. And um, he was looking at it from the angle of procuring long-term contracts um, as as a potential business idea. And so he asked me about that. And I was very honest. I was like, you know, I I don't really know much about this. Like I've heard people talk about it. I kind of understand blockchain technology, but I certainly don't understand the Bitcoin application. So it started with a question from someone. And then I made a couple of calls and then just went down that, that Bitcoin rabbit, rabbit hole so much to the point where, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it's super interesting. And then everyone I talked to and everyone I met to, it just led to another conversation that I thought was extremely interesting. And then when I understood it, um, I just, I, the, the sky's the mm-hmm. limit in terms of the opportunities um, that, that Bitcoin has in terms of financial security and access to financial security, something we take for granted in this country, but then also stepping back blockchain technology itself, sky's the limit and how we can apply that in all, all manner of issues and problems and even environmental issues. Um, we've been talking about some of that. So it's a very exciting space. And, and I fell into that so much to the point that I was in Houston earlier this week at uh, an event called the Empower Conference, where it was hosted by a, a group called the Digital Wildcatters, um, really interesting group of individuals. And they also have a really good podcast I recommend to listen to if you're interested in this stuff. Um, but basically, it brings together 
the energy the energy industry and the Bitcoin industry, and they just have these really amazing, informative, and uh, innovative type conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting sort of segues there is that, and you see more and more of this. You didn't see this so much a few years ago, but now you see the same kinds of people who, as we discussed, the the opponents of our energy industry, environmental hysterics that are actually, you know, not, not doing any favor for the environment, but they think they are. They are also now vehemently against Bitcoin. You see a lot of that overlap. You see people like Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure if AOC is saying anything about this. I think she probably has, but she, she's, she's definitely going to be in that camp once she realizes it, <laughs> once she puts a little bit of thought to it, she doesn't do it very often. Um, but yeah, so, so there, and so one of the things that's happening in the, in the Bitcoin space is you see this, this sort of, it's, it's a bit of a controversy in the sense that people are saying, well, you're making Bitcoin political when you raise up the fact that, you know, some of these left-wing environmental hysterics are now against Bitcoin. They're like, well, this is a thing for all. And it should be a thing. It should be a, a, a bipartisan thing. It shouldn't be a political thing. Uh, but, you know, nor should the First Amendment, for example. But that's also become a political thing, right? So yeah. <laughs> you, you see a little bit of that, that fight playing out, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, I think uh, Ted Cruz, you mentioned Texas, Ted Cruz had like a, a little speech about Bitcoin at the CPAC conference a couple months ago. And some people were, were in favor of that. And some people were like, oh, no, he's making Bitcoin political. But it's, it's, it's like, well, what do you want? You know, it's, uh, there are people who, who are making it political. It shouldn't be that way. It's, it's a, the entire purpose of Bitcoin is to deliver, you know, economic freedom to people all over the world, particularly the, the oppressed people uh, who are stuck to these worthless currencies and these these economies where they could just have their entire life savings confiscated by by dictate and so bitcoin becomes an enemy to those very kinds of people that we're talking about and one of the things that they bring up is the mining aspect i've seen you speak a little bit about that and one of the narratives we constantly hear is you know bitcoin mining network uh, uses more energy has a bigger carbon footprint than you know, Eritrea or Colombia, they, they pick a new country all the time. What, what's the, uh, what's the problem with that argument? What do you think they're missing? Well, they're missing the point. Um, and, and yeah, sure. Bitcoin uses more than certain countries, but they, they tend to pick countries that, um, you know, are relatively small, um, or have very small economies. The thing is any industrial action uses a lot of energy. And actually, if you compare Bitcoin to other, um, other sources of energy. Um, there was a recent analysis that I did with a, a friend of mine who's a Bitcoin miner based in Wyoming and then has operations in Texas. So the entire Bitcoin network uses less energy than we use every year on Christmas lights and we use every year on drying our clothes. Mm-hmm. Like those are those are important right. parts of life, but you don't see Elizabeth Warren yeah. um, sending hate mail to the Christmas light <laughs> manufacturers um, for a lot of reasons. But but you you also have to compare it. Like, what is though. it doing? Again, it's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> she may, you know, that yeah, Warren Christmas yeah. is it's we'll real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh but but Bitcoin, you've got to compare it to, to what it is. It's um, it is creating financial stability and financial access, access to that financial stability in ways that we've never before seen. And then also look at what just happened. It's it's happening in this country. It's not covered as much, but it was highly covered in Canada. Um, if you're in a system where you suddenly become a political dissident, mm-hmm. however the person in charge defines that, 
they can quickly take away your, uh, they, they can take your money away. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And the thing about Bitcoin is it's bigger than that. There's no one person or one entity that has control over it. There's no one person or one entity that can make policy decisions that devalue, um, that devalue mm -hmm. a Bitcoin. Um, and so that's, that's insanely powerful. And I think people are slowly but surely realizing the degree of freedom that that mm -hmm. actually brings. Um, and the whole conversation, the focus on energy, it's just, it's a red herring. It's usually compared to, to um, it, it's not appropriately contextualized. Um, and then two, if you, they're talking about energy demand and energy use. Yeah, it uses a lot of energy, but what kind of energy? Actually, if the industry itself, the Bitcoin industry, around 60% of their energy already comes from renewable mm -hmm. energy sources. That's the most of just about any other industrial mm -hmm. player out there. And so to set some crazy standard like, well, they're not 100% or, well, they're breathing life into some of these other traditional energy sources that were otherwise slated for retirement, we see that as bad. That just, um, it, one, it's irrelevant to what Bitcoin actually does. And then two, um, just like America, there is a great energy and environment story to tell. And we can't let people like Elizabeth Warren that tend to always be on the extreme edge of some conversation define that. And the good news is it is a bipartisan issue. There is a large group of people out mm -hmm. there set aside, um, you know, your extraneous members mm -hmm. that have already voice criticisms in this space, there's a large collection of bipartisan members that one, understand the value and then also understand that the energy conversation is largely a distraction. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, there, there are there are definitely members on both sides. Centrist or moderate sorts of Democrats are also uh, in favor of it. And that's great. We, we need that. We, we honestly need that. I'm not, I, I really hope it doesn't become just a Republican thing uh, or a libertarian thing. It needs to be a, a something that's you know, supported by a, a wide swath of the population because of what it does. And as you mentioned, uh, we've seen Canada, right? I mean, Canada resort to authoritarian tendencies, right? Uh, Australia has as well. Um, and these are the countries that you, you thought were, would be like sort of the last ones to go, right? It wouldn't be, surprise many people if some of these uh, you know, third world dictatorships did that. That's what happens all the time. But when you see first world countries do that, when you see the modern ecosystem that exists in the, in the, in the financial world, um, you know, entities like uh, like PayPal, some of these big banks, working to deplatform people as well. It's very scary, and uh, you know, thank God that we, that we have it. We have an escape out of that. What are you most hopeful for about our future in in, in the United States? Because we're going through we're going through some really unprecedented times in a lot of different ways. Obviously, we mentioned energy is a big part of that, which is causing. Uh, big contributor to the inflation problems and, you know, the geopolitics of our current day, pretty screwed. What gives you most hope about the United States? I'm really looking forward to the midterms. Um, and I, I say that in part because I do believe it's going to be a reckoning for the Democrats' extreme policies that are causing serious consequences. And while the serious consequences are unfortunate, it's forced a lot of Americans to essentially wake up to these these bad ideas that have seemed sort of abstract and out there, when you let someone get in charge that actually adheres to that or, or believes it, it causes serious mm -hmm. problems. And the good news in this country is we have elections that still very much matter. And I think people increasingly understand um, how important that is. So 
what I'm looking forward to is that through this very difficult time with all these unprecedented problems, the American people know that it's directly tied to bad policies coming from the extreme Democrats and the Biden administration. Um, and they're rearing and ready to go to to vote against it and to send that message and then to send people in Washington, D.C. that are attuned to what the American people want and need instead of trying to leave them out of the discussion and not really caring um, about the very real life consequences. So I'm looking forward to that. And then and then also, you know, it's tied to the culture of wokeism. Um, I think people are waking up to the fact that yeah, you have these Democrat policies, but a large part of it is this cultural wokeism that people are also attuned to and waking up to and the role of the media in trying to push that. So I'm excited that Americans are willing to push back and be very active um, to ensure that we continue to be a country on a path towards greatness that is rooted in a celebration of personal liberty and expanded freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, elections have consequences. I I think we're we're really seeing that uh, today more so than anything else. And these, some of these insane dystopian ideas that come from these uh, you know, academic institutions that have now made their way into public policy uh, have consequences. And, and you see that particularly where we are today when, when something goes wrong in the world. You know, a lot of these theories don't, don't pan out and they cause pain and suffering to ordinary people. So I think it's going to be a, a, a quiet reckoning as well. And, uh, you know, I'm optimistic about our future as well. I, I, I do see, even in LA, I see like a lot of reconsidering of some of these ideas that seem good in theory. I do see a bit of a change. I think wokeism is uh, running its course, at least to a certain extent. That's something I think we could all be hopeful of. Mandy, thanks so much for uh, being with me. Really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Where can people learn more about you, keep up with, uh, with your work? Uh, I direct them to my Twitter handle. It's at MississippiMG. Um, that's typically a, a good place to see what's going on, either what I'm doing or what I'm thinking about. So that's where I direct. Okay, it. great. And we'll put that in the bio in the, uh, we'll put it in the podcast notes rather. Thanks so much for being with me. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening. And we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.